0: The title for today's sermon is deliberately a double entendre. I've titled it Last Days Madness uh, because there is madness that the little horn of this chapter engages in in the last days of the Greek Empire. I've also called it Last Days Madness because of the way so many interpreters see almost everything is pointing to our time as the last days. They see an Antichrist behind every bush and behind every verse. And uh, it almost makes the unbelievers look at us as if we're mad, as if we're crazy. I know when I was growing up, uh, I was uh, convinced that Christ was, everything that was taught, that Christ was going to come back before I was 18 years of age. And of course, it didn't happen, unless I got left behind. Uh, (laughs) As far as I know, it didn't happen. And uh, it was supposed to be at the age 20 and 22. You've probably seen the book, 88 Reasons Why Christ Has to Come Back in 1988. And you've seen other irresponsible predictions that make the world just laugh at the church. Well, in this passage, I believe we have clear, clear indications that all of it was fulfilled in the past, and yet we find interpreters who insist, no, it is talking about some future antichrist that we need to be worried about. And I believe it gives us principles that can be applied to any type of a person who acts like that antichrist, and I'm not discounting the fact that we may suffer persecution in the future. But we're going to be getting to some very practical applications later on. But bear with me as we go through the interpretation, because if you don't see the historical interpretation and how it fell out, you're not going to be making accurate applications. And so I want us to start with verse 3. And um, maybe before we do that, just give you a little bit of a strategy of how I'm going to go through this passage. Verses 1 through 14 are the vision that Daniel received verses 15 through 27 is the angel's interpretation of that vision. He's not giving brand new material as some commentators try to uh, say that he is or adding in some new material. He's interpreting uh, the vision. For example, look at verses 15 and 16. Now what happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision was seeking the meaning, the meaning of what? The meaning of the vision that he's just finished seeing that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, Make this man understand the vision. That's his mandate, not to interpret, uh, bring in new information, but to interpret this vision for Daniel. And so what we're going to do in verses 1 through 14, I'm going to be looking at the symbols that are given in that vision, tying them in with the angel's interpretation, showing how they're historically fulfilled, and then following that, we'll make uh, some of the application. So starting at verse 3. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. Go over to verse 20. Keep your finger there, but at verse 20 it says, the interpretation, the ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. So it's a straightforward interpretation. This vision starts 12 years Uh, uh, after uh, Daniel gets this uh, vision. It begins to be uh, fulfilled. Verse 1 says that he gained this in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Twelve years later, Babylon falls to Medo-Persia, and he's going to be giving some of the details of what is happening ahead of time. Uh, Verse 3 continues on. He says, um, There was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high. But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Now, Persia was the kingdom that came up last, and it was the dominant power. Media had already been a major power before Cyrus came onto the throne in Persia. Persia conquered Media, and they formed then a joint empire where both the Medes and the Persians ruled together. So the the horn that came up last is Persia. It is the dominant power, And one of the remarkable things about that prophecy is that it would be unheard of for a nation that got conquered to later be able to share in the power of that empire, and yet that's exactly what was foretold by God's inspiration uh, before it happened. He goes on, verse 4, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, Now, if you look at a map, you'll see, and you study the history, you'll see that was exactly the directions in which Medo-Persia began to make uh, its conquests. Westward, Medo-Persia conquered Babylon, Syria, Asia Minor, made raids off and on into Greece. There was some domination there. Uh, then northward, it conquered Armenia, Scythia, and the Caspian Sea region. And then southward, it conquered Egypt and Ethiopia. Some of you are writing, so I'll just repeat those again quick. Westward, it conquered Babylon, Syria, Asia Minor, and for a time into Greece. Northward, it conquered Armenia, Scythia, and the Caspian Sea region. And then southward, it conquered Egypt and Ethiopia. Now, verse 4 goes on, it says, so that no beast could withstand him. Now, in an earlier chapter, we pointed out it wasn't just the four world empires that were bestial in their character, that had a tyranny associated with them. Really, any nation that is apart from the grace of God is going to deteriorate into tyranny. And so it speaks here of there being other beasts that uh, were in the vision, other nations that were conquered by Medo-Persia. It goes on, so that no beast could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will, and he became great. And it is a perfect description of the conquest that Cyrus made on behalf of Medo-Persia. And even the symbol of the ram was a symbol that was used by the Medes and the Persians to describe their empire. So the details really fall out beautifully many years before it happened. Now comes another empire in the making in verse 5. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the West. Take a look down at verse 21. It says, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. So there's no weaseling out of this one. Uh, people many times will take the little horn and the, the, the empire of Greece and they will apply it to something that is in the future. Uh, you can't have it both ways. People say the little horn here is the same as the little horn that's in the, uh, the kingdom of Rome In the previous chapter, and they have a resurrected Roman empire in the future, even though it only talks about four uh, Roman empires. But uh, can you have a Greek resurrected empire in the future? You know, you can't have it both ways. It's clearly identified as being in the time of Greece. Anyway, it goes on in verse 5, there was this male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. Now, that is a reference to the incredible speed with which Alexander the Great conquered the known world. I mean, it really was remarkable. He became general at age of 21. He had uh, almost all of the known world conquered by age 26 and most of that in the last three years of that period. So real incredible speed that is being symbolized here. So it's without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Look at the second sentence in verse 21. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. So it's talking about Alexander the Great very clearly there. Then in verses 6 through 7, it talks about the fury with which Alexander the Great conquered Medo-Persia. Why the fury? Because they had suffered as Greeks under the domination of the Medes and the Persians. And he was very furious, as you read the history books, in his attack against that empire. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram, He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Now that thought that there was no power in Medo-Persia to resist Alexander the Great is remarkable when you understand the historical background to it. Uh, because uh, Medo-Persia had far more people in terms of troops, had better positions, and yet you read the histories, it's almost as if there is something that is holding Medo-Persia back, making them unable to conquer. Let me give you uh, one example from the Battle of Granicus. That was the first battle. Alexander had only 35,000 foot soldiers against over 100,000 foot soldiers in the Medo-Persian army. And the Medes and the Persians, they had another 10,000 horsemen. Now, horsemen can be devastating, you know, when they're coming against uh, an army. And so they're outnumbered. And furthermore, the Greeks had a disadvantage in terms of tactics and in terms of positioning because they had to cross over the Hellespont River and then over the Granicus River, which would have tired them out. Look at those rivers it would have been tiring going through there. They're fighting coming up from that river. And yet, in spite of the odds there, there were only 100 Greek soldiers that were killed and there were 20,000 Persians who were killed. You see, it was a God-ordained inability to resist. Uh, The other battles between the Greeks and the Medo-Persians, there were even more uh, Persians and yet an inability to resist. Verse 8 speaks about the greatness of this kingdom under Alexander the Great and yet it didn't last very long. It only lasted for another seven years uh, before Alexander uh, was killed. As I mentioned earlier, he became general at age 21, had conquered most of the known world by age 26. Age 33, he dies of a fever, actual, uh, actually in drunken debauchery, and uh, this refers to that. It says, therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and that's a reference to God breaking Alexander the Great prematurely, destroying him. The large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, those four horns that replace Alexander the Great are the four generals that uh, had served under him, and they fought over the empire and divided it up into four parts. Four generals were Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And they divided the the empire up in a very real sense. It was divided to the four winds, four corners of the map. Now comes the controversial story of the little horn, which many people say, oh, this has got to refer to the future. And I believe it's a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes in the uh, 2nd century uh, B.C., and uh, he came out of the Seleucid part of the Greek Empire. Look at verse 9. It says, And out of one of them came a little horn. Out of one of whom? Well, it has to be out of one of the four horns that he just finished talking about. You cannot have this anti-Christian character uh, coming out of thin air in the future. He is clearly coming out of one of the four dynasties that came out of Alexander's empire, and specifically, it was out of the Seleucid uh, uh, dynasty. And so verse 9 says, And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly toward the south. That was a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes conquering Egypt, uh, toward the south. Towards the east, that's a reference to Persia, Parthia, and Armenia that were uh, conquered by him, and then towards the glorious land, that's Palestine. Want those countries again? Toward the south was Egypt. Toward the east, that was Persia, Parthia, Armenia. Persia, Parthia, and Armenia. And then towards uh, the glorious land was Palestine. And then comes a description of the horrible, incredibly horrible persecution that God's people had to suffer under them. And it lasted, as verse 14 says, exactly 2,300 days. Uh, look at the history books, just a little under six years and, uh, and four months. But uh, it, was a, it was a terrible time. We'll get to the, the time period in, in verse 14, but let's uh, look at verse 10. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now, verse 24, when it's interpreting this, indicates what's trampled into the ground are the saints. Look over at chapter 12, verse 3, and you'll see it's not unusual to use stars to symbolize the saints. Chapter 12, verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so what verse 10 is symbolizing in this figurative language is Antiochus trampling God's saints into the ground. For example, in one attack, he killed 80,000 men, women, and children, literally trampling them into the mud, despising them. It was a horrible period of time, which is seen by the Jews as being so significant that they celebrate the uh, survival through that and the victory that was given Judas Maccabeus and his uh, sons in a festival called, anybody know the name? Hanukkah, festival of Hanukkah. Um It's, it, I think is the background to Christmas. This year. Uh, Hanukkah starts on December 24 and uh, uh, it lasts for eight days. but it, it's uh, not just the pagans who celebrated something on that day. God's people did as well because a remarkable victory that God gave uh, to, to the saints. Anyway, verse 11. Uh, says he ex- he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. Did Antiochus Epiphanes do that? Well, he did, very much so. I have a picture of a coin from this period. I showed you some of the coins last week, forgot to bring them with me, but I have a picture of a coin uh, that has Zeus on one side, that was the chief uh, Greek god, and on the other side was a profile of Antiochus Epiphanes. And here's the words on that coin. Of Antiochus Epiphanes, the God manifest. See, he thought of, thought of himself as Zeus incarnate, the God of gods. And even his name, um, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, was blasphemy. He definitely had an ego trip, but I think it was more than that. There was something spiritual going on. I think he was possessed uh, of Satan uh, himself. If you look down at verse 25, second to last clause, it says, he shall even rise against the prince of princes. There was a self-conscious hatred of Jehovah, the true God, and he did everything that he could to fight against him when he came uh, to Israel. And verse 11 describes one aspect of that rising up against the prince of princes. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Well, that's exactly what happened. Uh, he uh, defiled the temple. Uh, he made sure that no sacrifices would be able to offer, be offered there. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes um, uh, outlawed any kind of um, uh, religious ceremonies. He tried to force them to worship his gods. Uh, he made it a capital crime uh, to circumcise your child to celebrate the Sabbath. Any other of the festival days, he tried to force the Jews to eat pork, drink blood. Uh, It was a a horrible time where he was trying to stamp out and obliterate any trace of biblical religion. Let me read you a a brief account of what happened when they tried to dismiss the high priest he had set up in in their temple. They thought he had died in Egypt, a little bit premature. He came back and uh, took revenge because they had uh, got uh, got rid of his uh, his, uh, priest. The account says, Antiochus accused the people of rebellion, savagely attacked and sacked Jerusalem, and executed tens of thousands of its inhabitants, 40,000 apparently dying within the space of three days, while others were taken captive. He entered the Holy of Holies in the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar of burnt offering, defiled the temple precincts, took the sacred furniture, and established a traitor, Menelaus, as high priest. In 168 B.C., when Antiochus' efforts to take Egypt were foiled by the Romans, he again vented his revenge on the Jews. More than 20,000 of his soldiers massacred the Jews, assembled for worship on a Sabbath day, and committed further atrocities and vandalism. The temple was left without the daily sacrifices, religious practices were non-existent, and a statue of Zeus was placed in the temple, and human sacrifices were made on the altar. Circumcision was forbidden, unclean meat was mandatory fare, and the Sabbath and other feast days were profaned. You can see, it was an awful, awful period for people to have to go through. And the question might be, why in the world would a good God allow such things to happen to his people? Why did God allow that? Well, verse 12 explains why. Because of transgression. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. Because of the disobedience of God's people, God sent Antiochus to punish his people. And this Antiochus was uh, um, a, basically a representative of the very things that these Jews had been following after. Uh, if you read First Maccabees, which is an excellent history, it's not a part of Scripture, but it is an excellent history. 1 uh, Maccabees saw this as God's judgment against Israel because Israel was following the pagan practices of the Greeks, and God was ironically saying, so you want to live like the Greeks, huh? I'll bring a Greek and see how you like it. Uh, they were despising the truth of the Scriptures, and God was saying, you want to see what it's like to live under someone who consistently rejects God's truth? And God brought uh, this Antiochus as a as a punishment, and he <clears throat> he destroyed the scriptures. First Maccabees one says, "The books of the law which they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire." Or the book of the covenant was found in the possession of any one, or if any one adhered to the law, the decree of the king con- condemned him to death. And that satanically inspired, I believe, demon possessed, perhaps Satan himself possessed him. Uh, he not only sought to destroy the scriptures, but every remnant of truth that God's people had taken from those scriptures. Verses thirteen through fourteen describes the time frame. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, "How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot?" And he said to me, "For two thousand three hundred days." then the sanctuary will be cleansed. And if you look at history, you'll find that was the exact period of time that Antiochus uh, sought to persecute uh, Israel. And at the end of that period, there was a cleansing of the temple, which took eight days. By the way, that's why Hanukkah uh, goes for eight days. It's uh, celebrated by Christ in the Gospel of John. Uh, And uh, it, it, it was finally cleansed on Kislev 25, which is the equivalent to December 25. By the way... The original tabernacle, if you look in Edersheim and some of the older references, the original tabernacle was set up on Kislev 25. The first sacrifice on the altar in the original tabernacle was on Nisan 14, the day that Christ was crucified. Again, pointing forward to the work of Christ. This uh, temple was cleansed and reestablished, set up on Kislev 25, and Christ, when he celebrated the Feast of uh, 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 a Feast of Dedication or Feast of Lights uh, in the Gospel of John, he indicated he was the fulfillment. It wasn't just talking about a physical temple. It was talking about the setting up of his body, the ultimate temple. And so there really is that kind of background to the celebration of Christmas. It wasn't just pagan. There's a lot of paganism that's come into Christmas, but there is a, 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 a biblical background to it as well. Anyway, where was I? Time frame we just went through. Now, some people agree. Okay. Verses 1 through 14, that's history. But when the angel interprets that history, he has to be introducing some new material because he's talking about these things happening in the end times. And we're in the end times. And what I want to point out to you is that it is the end times of the Greek Empire. Actually, the earlier verses talk about that as well. But we've already established in verse 22 that the four horns that replace the one horn are the four dynasties that immediately replaced Alexander. And verse 23 says, and in the latter time of their kingdom. You see that? Uh, It's clearly not something that's in the future, but it's clearly established as something that flows out of that Greek empire. And so verses 23 through 26 are describing something that happened in the Seleucid uh, Seleucid, uh, Empire. And uh, really, uh, verses 23 through 25, every detail of those verses, we're not going to take the time to go through everything because I'm going to be referring to them in the application, but every detail, the fierce features of verse 23, the destruction of Israel, the cunning, the arrogance, being broken without human hand, verse 25, fulfilled to a T in Antiochus. Um, He was not killed when the armies of Antiochus were overthrown by Judas Maccabeus' sons. He was off in Syria, and he died of a foul disease, a loathsome disease, and apparently in just agony, psychological agony, uh, struck down by God. So anyway, that is the background. That is what the prophecy means. Now what I want to do is have you look in your outlines, and we're going to make some applications. I'm going to skip down to points B and C, handle those together. And the reason I want to deal with these is because pervasive in American Christianity is the false idea that God would never make his people suffer tribulation. Have you ever heard that? I've heard it over and over again. Now, not all pre-trib rapture people say this. Uh, Some of them are are really consistent in trying to follow uh, the scriptures, but many people act as if God would never make his people suffer. That is a ridiculous notion. You you, you try telling that to the Sudanese Christians in southern Sudan who have been crucified, who have uh, been sold into slavery, who have been tortured, who have had their fields napalm. You try telling that to the... Uh, the Armenians, not to be confused with Armenians, but Armenians in Turkey who were wiped out, almost wiped out. Try telling that to the millions and the millions of Christians who have suffered and died under the former Soviet Union in Chad, in Uganda, in in, um, um, uh, Korea, in so many different places. Now, verse 12 indicates that Antiochus, quote, did all this and prospered. Sometimes the wicked do prosper. And verse 24 says, he shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Sometimes God's people get destroyed. And I think we need to have a realistic view of life. If God's people do not repent of their sins, there have been times in history when God has wiped out the church because of that as a, as a judgment. Why was it that the church did not survive in Turkey? Why it was wiped out? Well, if you read Revelation 2 through 3, it addresses churches that were in that region. And he says to one church, if you don't repent of your lack of love, I'm going to pull up your candlestick and remove it. He says to another church, if you do not repent of failing to discipline false doctrine, I'm going to come and fight against you. He says to another church, if you do not repent of failing to discipline immorality in your midst, There's going to be judgment, and that is exactly what happened in the region of Turkey. The church was wiped out. You see, when Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that is not a guarantee that Trinity Presbyterian Church will not be abandoned. It is not a guarantee that the American church will not be abandoned. There have been periods of history when all churches have been decimated. For example, in Africa, for the first four centuries, there was a a vibrant church there, a vibrant church. And yet, the church was wiped out, and Africa became the dark continent. Why? God's judgment on a church that had become ingrown, tolerating false doctrine, tolerating false practices, not reaching out as God had commanded. It can happen. And I think that we are deceiving ourselves if we think that the American church is totally exempt from judgment. All of this horrible destruction came upon the church, according to verse 12, because of the church's transgression. And verse 23, that the transgressors have reached their fullness. We really need to take seriously my calls to be praying, praying and fasting for the church of America that needs reformation desperately. I believe that the church, the evangelical church today, and there's many people, Michael Horton, R.C. Sproul, and others say the same thing. The evangelical church of today resembles Rome more than it resembles the Reformation. We're in desperate need of Reformation. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we're starting up the radio program. Glenn Durham, uh pastor of Harvest, um, uh, Kelly Burks, who meets here in the afternoon, myself, are doing a radio program on Tuesdays and, and Thursdays starting this next week. Be in prayer for that that we would have humble attitudes, that we would uh, be able to be effective in dialoguing with people. But this is one of many calls around the nation that are calling the church back to repentance and it is my prayer and hope that it will be uh, effective. But praise the Lord for points D and E. When there is repentance, as happened under the ministry of Judas and later under, under Judas Maccabeus' uh, sons, things can completely turn around. Now, there was revival that happened back then in the uh, second century BC, and there's a couple of hints of that. Verse 23 says, and in the latter time of their kingdom. Now, what's encouraging to me about that is the the, the days were numbered in which Greece was able to be a tyrannical power persecuting God's people. Uh, There's going to be a latter time of their kingdom. In verse 25, it says, he shall be broken without human hand. And that's exactly what happened to Antiochus. God took him out before he could do further damage. And praise the Lord, God has been faithful to do that down through history and even in our recent times. You look at how God has taken out people in Chad and in Liberia and Uganda and other countries. I think one of the darkest stories in the Bible and periods of time, and it's also one of the brightest periods of time, was the book of Esther. I love the book of Esther You just see God's providence wrapped through every verse of that book. Just a marvelous book to read. You know, that was a period of time when it looked as if every Jew would be wiped off the face of the map. That was their intent, completely destroy them. And in the nick of time, perfect timing, God comes around and turns it to favor uh, his people. And God's hand is not too short that it cannot save today here in America. And what I would advise you to do until the church is wiped out, and God forbid that that would ever happen, but until it is wiped out, we need to petition God for revival and for mercy. And so prayer is an obvious application. I, I wrote in my margin here um, the words that Mordecai gave to Esther. <clears throat> and Esther four thirteen and 14 says, Then Mordecai told them to answer Esther. "...do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place." In other words, God's purposes are not going to be thwarted. But that doesn't mean the Jews in this place won't be wiped out. He says, um, "...deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish." Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So I really urge you to take this seriously, the calls to pray for our nation and our church. That leads to point F. This chapter introduces the satanic warfare that goes on behind the scenes. Now, it does mention the angels here. We don't see the demons. It's not until chapters 10 through 11 that you see the incredible battles going on between uh, the forces of darkness and the angels of God but, you know, even on the surface of this chapter, it is obvious there is something huge going on behind the scenes. I mean, think about it. Why would Antiochus Epiphanes be picking on such a small nation as Israel and having such rage and anger against that nation? Politics can't answer it. It is because there is a battle between the, 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 the forces of God and the invisible forces of Satan. Why did he show such rage against the truth? against sacrifices, against the temple. I mean, why did he bother with that? He didn't mess around with all the temples, pagan temples around around the world. He knew there was something going on here. Satan knew the significance of all of those blood sacrifices pointing to the blood atonement of Christ, which is what? Powerful to defeat his plans. And he hates blood atonement. Anytime you see churches that begin watering down or taking away any mention of the blood atonement, you know there's something wrong going on there. Why was it that Satan was so angry against the truth? Because Satan knew how God's laws can impact even a society when the laws are in in holding back iniquity, and he will do everything he can to strike down righteous laws. Now, why is it that uh, Satan uh, had such a, a bad attitude toward worship? because he had experienced firsthand the power that worship has in destroying his kingdom. And to this day, Satan has done everything he can to oppose worship, to oppose God's law, and to, to, to do away with the concept of the blood atonement. You know, when you think about it, it really doesn't make a lot of sense why people do not like the laws of God in the civil realm, for example, in America. You'd think, perfect laws, they, they're the things that would bring liberty uh, to America, and yet they're opposed to it It's not just politics. They're opposed to it because of satanic forces that are battling behind the scenes. You will find liberals and homosexual organizations like ACT UP expressing rage against Christianity and tolerating just about any other religion. And and it's not any kind of Christianity. They'll put up with liberal Christianity They'll put up with passive Christianity, but what they cannot stand, what they have problems with, are Christians who hold to absolutes because it means they are absolutely wrong. They don't like Christians who believe in the literal doctrine of hell because it means unrepentant sinners like them are headed toward hell. They don't like Christians who hold to the inerrancy of Scripture that the Scripture must be followed in every jot and tittle because it means they don't have any wiggle room for their humanism. And you will find that uh, Christians like ourselves are going to more and more in the future be singled out for unfair treatment by so-called tolerant, broad-minded liberals because there is a religious war that is going out there and yet many Christians just cannot catch it. They say, oh, let's be nice. Let's not talk about culture wars. You know, that's just going to make matters worse. The fact of the matter is there is a culture war because of Satan's uh, virulence and his desire to destroy everything that relates to God. And I believe we need a reinstituting of Reformation Day in every church in America. And I think perhaps uh, uh, next year or sometime we ought to start instituting, instead of maybe having a Reformation Party, you might want to think about this, Maybe having a film of uh, the old black and white film of Martin Luther or some other film that educates people, uh, starting to teach. What are some of the principles that need reforming today? Spending some time asking God to bring about reformation because I'm convinced we are in desperate need of that. Um, The evangelical church today is abandoning more and more things that the Reformation considered to be absolutely essential And they are beginning to take on more and more things that the Reformation abandoned. One of the reasons why crisis point is needed. Take point G, for example. The Reformation insisted that kings were subject to God's law. Okay? Now, verse 25, all it says is that God is described as the prince of princes. In other words, other princes are accountable to him. Now, Antiochus would not acknowledge that He didn't like God's law. He opposed it, but he was answerable to God. And we must not be ashamed to call people, uh, politicians, to the word of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is king of kings. The reformers all did that. And I think we ought not to be embarrassed. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. Point H, another important point. Verse 25 says, Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his hand. If I had more time, we'd make some applications about the deceit that is prospering in our land, why that is happening. I mean, many parallels here to what is happening today. But he says, Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity, or as some translate it, when they feel secure. Now, there were two things, according to the book of Maccabees, that Antiochus was banking on when he came to Israel. First thing that he banked on was that People like to retain their prosperity, their standard of living, their sense of well-being, and that they're willing to trade in their liberties in order to retain their prosperity. The second thing he was banking on is that citizens tend to be gullible. And so what he did is he came into, as the passage there says, he came into uh, the, the region of Israel, and he starts negotiating with these people and saying that um, uh, they'll be able to retain their prosperity. He's on their side not to worry, and they actually let Antiochus Epiphanes into Jerusalem where he proceeded to massacre the people. That was in the spring of 167 B.C., a huge and an unsuspected slaughter. And yet how many times have people naively believed everything that the government tells them simply because it is the government telling them that? How many times has that happened? That was the undoing of the church in Nazi Germany. And you know... Uh, the government schools today are just as determined to destroy the truth as Antiochus Epiphanes was back then because, again, it's not just men that we're dealing with. We're dealing with the satanic principalities behind those men. And yet what do Christians do? They meekly submit their children to the education of these ungodly people who are trying to subvert exactly what we are doing We meekly submit, just like the Jews of the olden days submitted to the ungodly teaching of Antiochus Epiphanes until finally uh, Judas Maccabeus came along and he said, enough is enough. We're destroying our kids. We're destroying our whole culture. And he would not put up with that. I think we've got to think seriously about these applications. How many people have traded in true liberty in order to retain prosperity, and they've lost both? In the process. You know, America's founding fathers pledged their lives and their fortunes in order to maintain liberty, and uh, many of them, uh, some of them lost their lives, many of them lost their fortunes, but they considered it worthwhile because of the liberties they retained. I wonder how many people there are in America who would be willing to give up their fortunes, their pursuit of comfort in order to have liberty. Or how many of us love our comforts better than we love our liberties? If you lived in southern Sudan, would you be willing to fight for your freedoms? Now, most people would say, yes, we'd be willing to make those kind of sacrifices because we'd be wiped out if we don't. But why is it in America that we do not make any kind of sacrifices in order to retain the liberties that are being daily robbed from us in this country? We've got to do something about it. It is a satanic warfare. It's not just affecting the church. It affects all of culture. But eventually, what is happening, Satan's always trying to gear things up to the kind of severe persecution that happened under Antiochus' Epiphanes. Okay, at the same time, chapters 7 through 8 indicate there are degrees of honor among pagans. Compared to Antiochus, Alexander came off smelling pretty good. And compared to Alexander, Nebuchadnezzar looked pretty good. And the reason I'm pointing that out is we shouldn't go to the opposite extreme and write off everything that the government does. You know, by God's restraining grace, there is much of value and much of good that even pagan governments can be involved in. You look at the Apostle Paul. He appealed to Rome's justice system when he was about to be lynched by those that Jewish mob. Why? He figured he could get more justice from the Roman courts than he could from that mob. There was much of good there, and the Scriptures admonish us to pray for the government, to submit to the government and its lawful injunctions. And uh, and, and we really need to do that. In uh, Romans 13, he was describing, you know, uh, this was before the, the, the final persecution came, when they needed to flee, and Christ did tell people, you know, when you're persecuted, flee from one city. You don't have to say, okay, I've got to get persecuted. You can flee. But Romans 13 indicates that there was much of good in even the Roman government at that time. They kept the bandits off the roads. They paved the roads so that you could travel faster. They kept the pirates out of the seas and made travel much better. So don't go to the opposite extreme and be anarchists and say there's nothing good that government does. Of course there is, but we want to bring to bear as salt and light more and more of the gracious principles of the gospel and of God's law into our society. Point J says that there is meaning in even the most absurd and horrible of historical events. You see, God invested meaning in this time because God was the one who raised up Antiochus Epiphanes to bring his people to repentance. And he was very successful in doing that. There was a purifying effect. There was revival. There was turning to the Lord. God brought good out of the evil that Antiochus had intended. And the reason for that is God is far more concerned about your holiness than he is about your comfort. Now, if that's true, we may be in serious trouble here in America. If God is more concerned about your holiness than he is about your comfort, he may be turning up the heat so that we will become holy. See, I think we need to start thinking of history and governments in terms of of the covenantal relationship that all of life has to God. Otherwise, we're going to not interpret history properly. Everything is in covenantal relationship to God. Now, I threw in point K as a a point of interest to those of you who love eschatology, and the rest of you can turn your ears off for two minutes. Uh, People many times will discount the frequent time references that are found in the book of Revelation and how the the, the things in the first several chapters of Revelation are about to happen. They are coming, they're they're near, they're soon to happen, they're at hand, those types of things. And they will say, well, in God's eyes, 2,000 years, sure, that's at hand, that's near, that's soon. But I want you to take a look at the second half of verse 26. It says... There, he says to Daniel, therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. The many days in the future, or some translated the distant future, uh, is a little over 350 years. It's a long time away, and so he says, Daniel, don't worry about it, seal up the book. Now, Revelation uses similar language but reverses it. It says in Revelation, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. Now, premillennials many times say at hand can mean at hand even if it's 2,000 years away because we're thinking in terms of God's timing, not our timing. But what is the Bible? It's God's timing. It's God's word, everything that he says in there. And if we look at it in in that framework then we cannot make sense out of any of the time references. You've got the curious fact that Daniel is told, don't worry about it, seal it up because it's so far away. But John is told, oh, don't seal up the book because it's soon. Well, it's 2,000 years, but it's soon. Don't seal up the book. If that is true, you cannot know for sure any time reference that is given in the Scripture and all prophetic interpretation is destroyed. See, I take far distant to be exactly that, on anybody's time scale, 350 years away is a long time away. Isn't it for you? I mean, that's longer than America has even been as a nation. And in Revelation, what says these things are about to happen, that they are at hand, they will soon come to pass, most of the things in the first several chapters happened within four years. I would say that is pretty quick. That is at hand. So I think uh, that is, is one little clue as to how you can interpret Revelation. Now the rest of you can turn your ears back on. We've got one more lesson. I may not have convinced you to embrace my particular view of eschatology in some of my past lessons. That's fine. Whether you're a post-millennial, an amillennial, pre-millennial, I love you. (laughs) That's not what I was going to say. Whether you're a post-, pre-, or amillennial, it doesn't matter what your view of the future is, don't let your view of prophecy keep you from action, keep you from being faithful to the Lord. Okay, verse 27. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and I went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. See, despite being troubled over the prophesied future persecution, he went about his work. There's a phrase that says some people are of so are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. Well, I think some people can be so future-minded, so preoccupied with uh, prophecy that they're of no earthly good today. Now, I do not think that is true if you hold to the biblical view of the future, but we won't uh, get into that right now. First Peter, no, Second Peter and uh, First John indicate that if you have the biblical hope, it is a hope that will give you zeal. It is a hope that will purify you. It is a hope that will make you diligent in establishing God's kingdom. But anyway, whatever your view of the future, even if you think the future is going to be terribly glum, Your responsibility is not to control the future. Your responsibility is to be a faithful servant to the Lord Jesus Christ, do everything that you can to occupy till he comes. Amen.